and welcome to the Engineering Your Farm podcast. This podcast is produced by the Iowa State University Extension and Outreach Field Agricultural Engineering Team. Welcome, everyone. I'm Brian Doherty, Field Agricultural Engineer with Iowa State University Extension and Outreach. And today we're going to do a deep dive into the world of soil health. We'll discuss what soil health is, how to measure it, and how to improve it over time. My guest today is an assistant extension professor at the University of Minnesota and also the state soil health specialist with the Minnesota Office for Soil Health. Joining me today is Dr. Anna Cates. Anna, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. Nice to be here. So to start things off, can you just give us a little bit of background about yourself and how you got interested in soil health? Sure. Well, I uh, I didn't grow up on a farm uh, for most of my life. I lived on a cow-calf operation with my parents in southwest Wisconsin when I was real little. Uh, but I mostly grew up in the city in Missoula, Montana. Uh, but I got interested in farming, uh, just thinking about where my food came from. Worked on small vegetable farms for a while and then wanted to understand the big production farms in the Midwest and how they worked more scientifically. So I came back to graduate school at UW-Madison and took soil science classes and really fell in love with soil as this fundamental medium that's really mysterious, but uh, critical to how all farms and all ecosystems on the planet operate. Well, not all ecosystems, the land ecosystems, obviously. Okay, so I'm going to hit you with the million dollar question right away. What exactly (laughs) is soil health? So you hear lots of different definitions out there and people have different conceptualizations of what this is. So when somebody asks you what soil health is, how do you respond to that? Well, they do ask me because it's literally in my job title, as you put out there. And uh, I like the NRCS definition. Soil health is the soil's ability to function as a vital living ecosystem. And I like it because it highlights the soil functions. And that allows anybody to define what the most important functions to them are, whether it's getting that 250 bushel corn every single year, or whether it's having a farm that's profitable to pass on to their grandchildren, or whether it's having a wetland that filters a lot of nutrients and water before it hits uh, any surface waterways. All those functions can be valuable. And you can define that for yourself under that definition of soil health. You want a soil that provides the functions that you prioritize. I guess I also feel okay with soil health not having a precise definition, you know, of 3% organic matter or this or that other qualities, because it's really a metaphor that helps us describe what we like in our soil. It helps us imagine what kind of soil we could have. It doesn't have to mean a specific set of properties. Like I said, it can be defined in context. So you're currently the state soil health specialist with the Minnesota Office for Soil Health. So can you just talk a little bit about what that office is, what you do, how that came about? Yeah, so I wasn't there. I was hired into the job after the office was created. But it's partly funded by the Board of Water and Soil Resources, which really wanted to increase capacity for soil health work in their local government offices around the state of Minnesota. So we have soil and water conservation districts in most counties in Minnesota, and they're doing a lot of the -the on-the-ground work with farmers in terms of uh, writing contracts for specific cost-share implementation for a practice like cover crops, for example. Uh, And they're also just, you know, one of the people a farmer can call when they have an issue with some agronomic production or conservation concern. So uh, those people are are often, you know, kind of uh, fresh out of college in some cases. Some of them have decades of experience, but some don't. 
And so it's part of my office's role is to make sure they have access to good training and good resources to get up to speed on different soil health concepts. So, and that's helpful for me too. I don't know how many thousand farmers there are in Minnesota, but there's, you know, about 50 or 80, you know, conservation districts that work with agricultural systems. And I think about supporting them to support the farmers that they work with. Yeah, it sounds like a great program. You're making me a little jealous here. We don't have something like that in (laughs) Iowa. (laughs) Well, you got to talk to every farmer, I guess, Brian. (laughs) So speaking of farmers, are there some simple ways that a farmer can just go out in the field and assess the health of their soil or some simple indicators that they can look at? Sure. I actually really like the series of YouTube videos that you did, Brian, on using a shovel and other sort of DIY soil health assessments in the field. Um, I think about using a shovel because you can learn a lot just by how hard it is to stick that shovel into the ground and also by you know what the roots look like. If you pull up a corner of soybean plant, are the roots going in every direction or are they you know, sheared along the line of the row? Um, you can see if they hit a compacted layer and start growing horizontally instead of straight down. So that can tell you a lot. Uh, I have one colleague at one of these soil water conservation district offices in, in Mauer County who says the best way to assess your soil is to go out when it's really raining and to wear your rubber boots out there and see how the water is sinking into the soil. And uh, so you could do that. But I also, I'd say even if you don't want to go out in the middle of the rainstorm, paying attention to the water behavior across the landscape, maybe you just take a drive around your fields and see where water is ponding, where it's infiltrating. There are naturally depressions on the landscape where you're going to have some ponding, but are there ways you could manage that would increase your infiltration and and decrease the length of that ponding and that kind of thing? Your plants are going to be another really obvious above ground indicator of how effective, how healthy your soil is. If your plants are consistently dying and not doing well in some part of your field, that's probably leading back to a soil issue in one way or another. So using the shovel, watching the water, and using your plants um, are things I tell farmers to look at first. Yep, all sounds like good recommendations. And since you mentioned it, I'll put in a shameless plug for our (laughs) YouTube video. So if you go to the ISU Extension Ag and Natural Resources YouTube page, there's a playlist there of soil health videos. They're uh, kind of a one-man show that I did during a COVID lockdown that are a little low budget, but hopefully they're useful for people. Yeah, I think they show a lot of really good ways to assess the soil. And you have some good examples of of what a a healthy soil might look like when you pull it up out of the ground. What about soil health testing? Think sort of things you can get done at like a commercial lab. Are there specific measurements or tests that you recommend for farmers that are interested in trying to measure this? Uh, Well, organic matter is the obvious one that's widely used, widely done at different labs. And it also is really clearly connected to some of the soil health functions we're interested in. Uh, it does bounce around a lot. So don't be disturbed if your organic matter goes down a little bit one year and up a little bit the next year and then down again. Uh, it, you might not be able to detect a long-term trend unless you do really extensive sampling and are really carefully you know, sampling different soil types or landscape positions across a field. Um, and, and maybe you've got capacity to do that in a sort of gridded, stratified sampling uh, scheme. But if if not, you know, just notice whether your organic matter is going up and down. Your organic matter is important because that's the, the source of organic nutrient delivery to your crops. And it's also uh, related to your soil structure because your organic matter holds your soil aggregates together and allows for creation of big aggregates 
that can hold water in small pores and let water grow around them in big pores. So your organic matter relates to both your your biological function, your fertility, and then also to the the physical structure of your soil. So I think that's really a good one. Um, You can get a little bit more specific about organic matter with some of the soil health tests that measure something like a permanganate oxidizable carbon or a potentially mineralizable carbon, which is also sometimes called a 24-hour carbon dioxide burst test. So those are sort of a, a fraction of the organic matter pools. Yeah, one of the other tests I kind of like is just looking at aggregate stability. And I know that's historically something that's just been done in like university labs. If there are some commercial labs that are offering that test now. So that's another one that uh, farmers can check out. That's true. That's a good point. I do like that one. And you just don't see it that often. I think, you know, the Haney test has gotten a lot of play and people have paid less attention to the physical properties. It is time consuming to measure. So I get why not a lot of commercial labs are doing it. But it relates to a lot of those functions around water behavior that I brought up earlier. It is, yeah. I, I spent several weeks in the lab as a grad student doing uh, wet aggregate stability tests, and it, it's a real pain. So it's good to see the commercial labs are offering that now so people have access to it. Yes, so, I think the combined hours of undergraduates doing that in my lab is uh, is probably <laughs> an embarrassing number, not to mention weeks of my life. So <laughs> I'm with yeah, you there. But, but yeah, very, very useful test uh, to me, like, Soil aggregates, they're, they're kind of the foundation and the building blocks of soil health is, is how I describe it to people. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned the Haney test. So tell us a little bit about what that is. I know there's some controversy about the Haney test sure. and how it's calibrated. How is that different from a standard soil test? And is that something that you've looked at or are recommending to farmers? Okay. So starting with how it's different from a standard soil fertility test, essentially, Uh, Both tests are trying to extract components of the soil by uh, mixing the solid with a liquid and um, and figuring out what components come out of the solid into the liquid. So you get, you know, your your standard fertility, you get a soluble nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium type number um, by doing an extraction. The Haney test, instead of using the, the sort of salt extraction that a standard fertility test does, uses a water extraction to estimate carbon and nitrogen, organic carbon and nitrogen. So that's about half of the test is water extractable, organic carbon and nitrogen. And those are important because those are microbial food sources. They are a small portion of the total carbon and nitrogen, the total organic matter in the soil. But, you know, microbes are small and they are water soluble. So they like those tiny water soluble molecules of carbon and nitrogen. The other big piece of the Haney test is something I mentioned earlier, the 24 hour test of carbon mineralization. So for that one, it's like your, um, You're taking your soil microbes, you're setting them up under ideal conditions, and you're seeing how much they eat in terms of carbon and how much carbon they breathe out in carbon dioxide. I like to compare it to something like the presidential fitness test that we did in school as kids, where it's like you got to run around those cones 16 times or whatever, carrying your little rubber rings. And it's not something you usually do in real life, but it's a metric of how fit you are to do actually relevant tasks. So the uh, 24-hour carbon dioxide burst is a metric of how fit your microbes are to do their normal decomposition tasks in the soil. You do an incubation at a set temperature and moisture level for 24 hours, and if your microbes respire a lot of carbon dioxide, that probably means that there are either a lot of them or that they have a lot of food or that they, um, you know, kind of have ideal conditions under which to work. You can't say exactly which of those ones it is, but it tells you a little bit about the food source and a little bit the micro- about the microbial fitness. 
those are the two components, that 24-hour burst test and that water extractable carbon and nitrogen. So the Haney test gives you a lot of information about food available to microbes and how active the microbes are. And those properties are related to mineralization of organic matter, which should release nitrogen that your plants can take up. And so that's the part of the Haney test where I think we're not on quite as firm a footing is that we don't know how much nitrogen is going to be mineralized by your microbes over the course of a growing season. It's really dependent on seasonal variability, temperature and moisture throughout the growing season. And so to say that because we did a Haney test in the spring, we can predict the nitrogen needs of your plant, we just aren't there yet in terms of having enough data points. There's thousands of data points going into making nitrogen fertilizer recommendations in every state. And we, we just don't have that level of data with the Haney test uh, to, to use it for fertilizer predictions. So it's a good way to get a snapshot of how well your microbes are functioning. But I don't think we're ready to use that to make fertilizer recommendations. Um, but I, I like the baseline of the Haney test. Uh, the score, the Haney score that's sometimes calculated is sort of a manipulation, just a mathematical manipulation of those two numbers I brought up earlier, the water extractable carbon and nitrogen and the 24-hour burst test. And it is what it is. It, it weights certain components of it. But I would pay attention to the components themselves more than the actual score. Yeah. And it's a little bit different in that they have what they call the H3A extract yes. as well. I don't know if you can just kind of explain to people what that is or how that's different from the, the standard chemical extractions that are used on yes. soil tests. That's right, Brian. I was focusing more on those carbon and nitrogen pools, but they have that. Um, I mentioned that a standard fertility test extracts with salt, and this one extracts with some weak acid, which is supposed to be similar to what roots exude. But like I said, we just don't have enough data points to say what that extract is getting relative to what's going to be available to your plants. I don't know. Have you used it much for fertility planning at all or tested it in that way, Brian? I mean, I haven't done any testing on it. I've taken several of them and I've seen a lot of them that other people have sent me. It's, they're interesting to look at. I know some farmers are using them to set their nitrogen rate mm -hmm. and you can argue whether they should be doing that or not, but they seem to be happy with it. Yeah. And so I think part of that is making sure you talked about the soil respiration, making sure that respiration score is up there and probably the medium to high range. Because if it's yeah. pretty low, I would not take a big nitrogen credit from that test. Yeah, we tend to have almost universally high Haney burst scores uh, in the data I've seen from our soil testing labs. And I don't know anything about the practices associated with those scores. So I think it just has to do with our high organic matter soils. And that maybe the, the scale of low, medium, high should be kind of recalibrated for a high organic matter soil like a lot of people in Iowa and Minnesota are working with. Yeah, of course, one of the soil health principles that some people talk about is context. And so you got to think about what kind of soil are you dealing with here? You can't compare, you know, a sandy soil to a clay soil with high organic matter. So what about in the lab? So as a researcher, there are lots of other tests that you can run to try to measure soil health or see if it's changing over time. What are some of the things you're using in the lab that maybe you're not ready to recommend to farmers yet? Sure. Well, I am interested in soil organic matter cycling because it, it like I said, it ties together physical aggregation um, as well as the uh, biological activity in the soil. So I actually run quite a bit of that 24-hour respiration incubation. I like it as just a, a real quick and easy way of assessing active carbon and microbial activity in the soil. I'm also measuring something called autoclave citrate extractable protein 
which is an organic nitrogen pool. And this is, again, because of the importance and the ongoing interest of trying to predict how much of the organic nitrogen pool is going to become available to your plants over the course of a season. So the uh, autoclave citrate extractable or ACE protein is a little bit newer, and I'm just trying to gather some data from Minnesota to see if it's a relevant metric. Otherwise, like I said, I do a lot of aggregate stability, and I, I'm pretty happy with that as a metric. Um, I'm not doing anything much fancier. I have a few graduate students who are looking at microbial community composition, so how many microbes in different communities, but most of the functions, you know, going back to soil health as providing functions, most of the functions that a farmer wants for microbes are really ubiquitous, as in many, many, many kinds of microbes can decompose corn stalks. And many, many, many kinds of microbes can build aggregates with their sticky body residues. So we don't need to have, you know, particular, you know, gram positive or gram negative microbes in order to do those things. And so I haven't done a lot of that kind of assessment. I, I like aggregate stability and I like being able to assess uh, carbon and nitrogen pools a little bit. Yeah, I was actually just going to ask you about the PLFA test. And I know the, the gram positive negative is one of the things that that test looks at mm -hmm. and also like fungal to bacteria ratio. So have you done anything with that test or what are, what are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, I've used it occasionally. It's, uh, it's hard with microbes. The PLFA test gives you about six categories of microbes. And um, the fungal to bacterial ratio can be an interesting one to look at, certainly. Fungi are important in, in different ways than bacteria. They're more mobile in the soil. Their different body structure, their stringy hyphal structure actually holds the soil together more. So that's very different. Uh, so that fungal to bacterial ratio can be interesting. But in terms of showing us a lot about sort of the different kinds of bacteria that are there, the groups are in a way too big. It's like if you looked at all the plants across the landscape and you said, okay, well, these ones are short and these ones are tall. And that would tell you a little bit about their function, but you'd be missing some important things like rooting structure or whether they fix nitrogen or whether they're poisonous or what kind of fruiting structures they have. So the, a lot of the categories offered by the PLFA are in a way too broad to be useful. And then if you get down into microbial DNA, you almost have too many categories to be useful because we can name a lot more microbes than we can say what they do. So it goes back to thinking that what microbes do in the soil, it's super important. But a lot of different kinds of microbes do most of the things we care about. The things we care about most we can get from a lot of different microbial groups. And, and for a lot of the row crop farmers that I work with, the basic um, principles of soil health in terms of reducing disturbance and keeping the soil covered, stopping erosion, and getting your soil structure back, those are sort of the way more big picture, more higher priority things I'm thinking about than exactly what the composition of microbes in their soil is. Yeah, I know there's some newer labs uh, coming out with tests now, you know, to look at basically the DNA and all yeah. these different groups that are in the soil. And I've, I've seen a few of those, but I'm not quite sure that, you know, <laughs> that I even know what to do with that or I'm ready to yeah. make a management decision with a test like that. Yeah, I don't think we can make a management decision with a test like that. I'd like to find a better quick and dirty way to measure fungi in the soil. Uh, because I do think, like I said, they serve these really specific functions. They are able to, you know, form associations with plants and gather resources for them, and they're able to hold soil structure together. It, those are important functions that bacteria aren't providing, but we don't have a great way to just rapidly assess fungi. And I, so I'm interested in maybe developing that capacity down the road. Well, if you get that figured out, let me know, because <laughs> we, <laughs> we definitely need that. So Sure. 
So you talked about some of the basic uh, soil health principles or practices. So if somebody's just getting started with this, they're just learning about soil health, they haven't really done any cover crops or anything like that yet, what do you recommend? How do they get started with this? Uh, a lot of Minnesota's row crop land is corn-soybean rotation, and a lot of it sees fall tillage. And at the number one thing I think we could do is reduce fall tillage, reduce tillage passes in general. If we can keep something on the surface throughout the winter, hopefully we can reduce erosion because soil blowing and washing away is not healthy soil. That's the very first step is not having your soil blowing and washing away. I'm doing actually quite a few measurements of erosion in my lab right now because I want to provide some kind of hard data and numbers showing the, the difference in how much soil is moving around under different systems. So I would say the first step is just trying to keep something on the surface, especially reducing that fall tillage pass and um, and then take it from there. See how you like it from there. Dr. Jerry Hatfield has a nice quote that I like. He says, moving soil is unproductive soil. That's, that's <laughs> it sure pretty, is, isn't it? Pretty <laughs> good it way to look at it. can be very nutrient rich. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, I see lots of pictures on Facebook of snurt, people call yeah. it, or basically soil mixed with snow that's ended up in the ditches. So yeah, what about the more advanced farmers that maybe they've been doing some of these practices for a while now? What are some of the things that you're seeing up in Minnesota there that's been successful for them that they've been able to make work? Sure. So besides reducing tillage, adding cover crops is their main way to get soil health principles into a row crop system in Minnesota. And that's getting at the principles of keeping a living root in the ground as much of the year as possible and adding some diversity to the system. And then it seems that once people get excited about what cover crops do to their soil, then they look for a way to really make it pay. And then you see people trying to get into livestock. And this isn't really a soils or agronomic decision. This is a lifestyle decision. You know, usually it's adding some beef cattle to their operation because they can sort of be pretty flexible in their feed. You can use them to graze winter cover crops. You can use them to graze uh, some, you know, corn residue and that kind of thing. And that means that your cover crops now have this economic purpose, and it kind of changes the whole structure of the farm. It allows you to experiment even more. So I feel like people start by trying to reduce tillage, and then maybe they plant a cover crop a little bit. And then if they really like the cover crop, they see, I got to figure out some way to make this cover crop a direct source of, of cash flow, and animals end up being the way that most people are able to do that. We do have some matchmaking programs in Minnesota and across the Midwest where row crop farmers can look for a livestock farmer to come and graze their cover crop and hire it out or at least get the free manure uh, from that kind of uh, cooperation, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of interest in that here in Iowa, too. Of course, we've got a lot of cattle we could potentially put out on the landscape, and there's a number of farmers experimenting with 60-inch row spacing and corn and then trying to grow a big cover crop with an early sure. interseed and you know, you can get a really big cover crop that way. But yeah, unless you have the livestock to utilize that, it doesn't really pay economically right now. No, not unless you just want to look at the sunflowers or whatever you've got. <laughs> but yeah, most they, people want some cash out of the land also. Yeah, that, you definitely get, you know, the insects and the pollinators in there for sure with those uh, early interseed cover crops. So there are d definitely some soil health benefits and biodiversity benefits. But to capitalize yes. on them economically, you have to have a livestock component. Yes. So covered a lot of ground there. Is there anything uh, we didn't get to that you, you think we should talk about? Well, just what you last brought up, actually, in terms of pollinators, just reminds me that there's kind of a, a whole food web starting in the soil. And I talked a lot about the microbes. But another reason to keep litter on the surface is because you're encouraging the above ground invertebrates 
the beneficial predators in the insect populations. That's a, a food web we don't know that much about, except for as it relates to direct pathogens of our crops. But I think it's a, a kind of unexplored part of soil health is that when we have these systems that have a little bit more complexity in terms of litter and different plant species growing all year round, we can actually sort of change the biodiversity from the microbes up through the food chain to the things that eat microbes and, and all the things that live in the litter layer. So that's something I'd like to explore more um, in the next few years. And it, I think it's a, a definitely an important part of a soil health system. Another piece that it's hard to see, but it's working for us out there on the landscape. Yeah, for sure. I've seen a lot of, I guess I'd say conflicting research on the benefits of biodiversity. Some research, you know, with cover crops, for example, show maybe you're better off with just a single species. You get more biomass. Other studies do show some benefits to the diverse mixes. So yeah. To me, it just kind of all comes down to management. What is it you're trying to achieve and then go from there? Yeah. And those first steps are just to get something growing. Um, you know, some people in my state are on their way to experimenting with a lot of diverse mixes, but a lot of people are just needing to try that first cover crop species and how that goes for them will determine what they want to do next, I think. Excellent. So, Anna, thanks so much for being on the podcast today to share your thoughts and your passion for soil health. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Kate's work, you can visit mosh.umn.edu. That's M-O-S-H.umn.edu. Or you can follow at MNSoil on Twitter. You've been listening to the Engineering Your Farm podcast. Engineering Your Farm podcast.